This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back. Hope you had a great Labor Day holiday yesterday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions, questions about stuff that's going on in your life, whatever's on your heart. All we need you to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Everything except hitting the one banner, call now. Everything else is hands-free, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Uh, again, it's Tuesday. You don't have anything to talk about other than hope you had a good holiday. I already did that. So let me get right to some questions that have been sent. The first one comes from our mobile app. It is from Scott. He says, this Proverbs 25, 21, and 22 have the same meaning as Romans twelve twenty. And is Paul directly quoting this verse in Proverbs? Let me read the the two uh, verses and then I'll explain, Scott. Uh, Verse 21 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Romans 12, Paul uh, quoting it, he says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Uh, Scott, they mean exactly the same thing. Uh, Paul was just affirming the value of this proverb uh, when he was writing to the church at Rome. Now, the reason there's a little bit of difference in the order, and this is the only difference, most of your New Testament writers, when they were quoting the Old Testament, they were quoting the Septuagint. Now, Septuagint is the Greek manuscripts of the Old Testament, um, dates back to about 189 B.C., and it actually is still today one of the most reliable um, translations of, of the Hebrew text that we have and is very directly um, uh, useful for us, uh, and, and we can count on it. So, again, it, it's just Paul quoting the Septuagint. That's, he's not the only Bible writer that does that. You know, one of the things that, that I thought this question when I saw this uh, proverb being 
being um, asked about was, what about heaping burning coals on his head? I get this a lot. You know, it sounds like a really good thing, at least a, a flesh-satisfying thing. You know, if I'm nice to somebody who is my enemy, I'm going to heap burning coals on his head and it's going to burn him. But but remember, in, in the ancient world, people carried burning coals on their head that was their source of fire. And so you'd see these people walking and they'd have this big um, uh, bowl with burning coals carrying it on their head. And what Paul is quoting, the, the writer of Proverbs saying, look, if, if you are nice to your enemy, you're giving him or her the, the necessities of life. So while heaping burning coals on his head satisfies our flesh, that's the exact opposite of what it means, Scott. But yeah, they, they have the same meaning. Paul is simply saying, um, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. That way you can win your enemy over. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And that's the purpose. Good question. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Stacy. Uh, what does the scripture or scriptures found in Exodus, Numbers, Ezekiel, and Deuteronomy, the sins of the fathers, mean? How does that play into the theory of generational curses or inherited sin? I'm confused and need to understand. Stacy, I understand that is confusing, and, and part of the reason it's confusing is because those who would teach that generational curses uh, still afflict Christians today have so butchered the text, and, and they've been real popular. I mean, generational curses is a way of putting the problem for our sin on somebody else. In other words, well, it's not my fault. I didn't do anything to do this, and, and so I'm blameless in it, and um, uh, it pays well. Uh, it falls teachers, and believe me, if they're teaching generational inherited sin, uh, they are false teachers. So here's what it means. The sins of the fathers. Uh, I'll give you one example in Exodus. It's one that most people talk about. Uh, the sins of the fathers will pass to the sons or the, the other family members uh, to the third and fourth generation. Um, and then it's contrasted with the, 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 the love of God will extend for a thousand generations. Now, here's the thing that people never talk about, Stacey. The sins of the fathers will extend to third and fourth generation and those next words, of those who hate God. So there's no such thing as a generational curse. And the idea is pretty simple, and I think we see it all the time. If you grew up in an alcoholic family, then you are often prone to looking to alcohol to, to um, provide some sort of comfort. I mean, it's something you're familiar with. If you you grow up with angry people, then you often are angry yourselves. You know, we have DNA. We inherit traits from our, our fathers and mothers. And if, if we don't arrest those with the power of the Holy Spirit, then we're going to be bound by those same kinds of sin. The one thing I've learned, Stacy, uh, over the years is that nothing changes apart from Jesus Christ. We can try to do better, we can try to be better, and we may succeed for a really short period of time. But the truth of the matter is that when sin is in our heart, those are the sins that are going to come out, and they're going to plague us. And, um, you know, Stacy, my dad is with the Lord now. He, he was saved literally uh, the night before he died in the hospital. Um, 
I'm just like him. My dad wasn't a nice guy. I have the same mannerisms, the same characteristics. I have another son who acts just like me. Thank God he looks like his mother, but he acts just like me. And see, that's what we're talking about. We repeat the same sin patterns. And and uh, they have to be broken by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So, Stacy, that's all it means. There is no such thing as generational curses, and I would urge you to reject any and all um, preachers, I was going to say Bible teachers, but they're not Bible teachers, they're false teachers, who would um, um, try to indicate that inherited sin or generational curses are a real thing. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation, the old is gone, and the new has come. So the idea of general, generational curses is uh, unthinkable to God. In fact, he will say uh, that his teeth are set on edge. That means he's kind of grinding his teeth in anger uh, when he hears the, the priests and the others in Jerusalem say, well, you know, the sins of the fathers will be passed. No, each man, each woman will stand before God accountable only for their own sins and not anyone else's sins. So, Stacy, thank you. I hope that helps. Here is a question anonymously. Uh, it says, Pastor Ron, I'm a Christian and want to know how do we distinguish between Black Lives Matter as a concept and Black Lives Matter as an organization. I think, Anonymous, the first thing we do is we have to completely, I, for, I'm speaking to Christians now, we have to completely reject Black Lives Matter as an organization. They are decidedly anti-Christ. They are anti what we would consider American or patriotic. But um, there's there's nothing good at all about the organization, Black Lives Matter. They are a Marxist, socialist organization. They have an agenda. Uh, Part of that agenda is destroying the, 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 the patriarchal family model that God established. There's nothing about Black Lives Matter as an organization that has even a shred of value. So I want people to understand that and hear that clearly. Now, the concept, of course, black lives matter. They matter to God. They need to matter to us. And one of the things that's a little bit encouraging in all this craziness, Anonymous, that we're going through in our world is that we have a lot of really well-known black people who are really pushing back hard on BLM as an organization. Uh, If you are a believer, we understand when people are shouting Black Lives Matter in the current context, it is offensive, and understandably so. We say, well, all lives matter. Well, all lives matter to God, but they're protesting uh, those who are legitimately protesting. Again, there's another distinction to be made. They're protesting what they perceive as, as, as police brutality or police unfairness or police racism towards black people in general. And we can dialogue with people like that. We can talk to them. In fact, I think it represents a really wonderful opportunity to share. But if we immediately polarize them by saying, well, all lives matter, um, then we're not going to have the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. So black lives matter as a concept. Of course they matter. And they need to matter to us as well. And when I say us, those of us who are not black. 
Christians, as I've said on this program many times in answer to questions like this, anonymous, should not have one shred of prejudice in us. Not, Not a shred. If you do, then we need to repent. If we're offended in any way because somebody is black or somebody is brown or somebody is Asian, then we need to repent before God. You cannot hate the people that God loves and claim to love the God who loves them. So it's very important that we get this. But I think it's equally important for to be shrewd as serpents, wise as doves. Well, to be shrewd as serpents, we've got to understand that Black Lives Matter, the organization, is an affront not only to God, but to those of us who believe in Jesus Christ and is decidedly in and of itself racist, but even worse than that, Marxist and socialist. So that's how we distinguish between them. We don't take the the, the organization, but we take the concept and embrace it. Oliver said... Since there are so many religions and all are based on faith, why is Christianity true over the others? Oliver, um, and you're right, even being an atheist is based on faith. And, and atheism is a religion, by the way. But the reason Christianity is true is because only Christians have evidence. You know, sometimes people think, oh, you all believe in faith, you all believe in faith. But ours is not blind faith. Certainly, faith is important. We're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the faith is the gift from God. So we have to believe by faith in what we haven't seen. And the Holy Spirit, of course, does that work in our hearts. But it's not blind faith. What we believe is based on evidence, the evidence that Jesus was a real person. That evidence is overwhelming. He changed the world as no one has ever changed. You know, we're talking... 2,000-some-odd years, and the world remains changed. The fact that Christianity, starting out with with, uh, 12, you know, the world would have called them losers, has radically revolutionized the world. That's the proof of the power of God. So we have that evidence We also have evidence that though they killed Jesus, and again, the evidence is undeniable, both biblical evidence and secular historical evidence, we also have overwhelming evidence that Jesus didn't stay dead. So that's why Christianity is true. And the one thing, Oliver, that distinguishes our faith as opposed to all others is the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. It's why we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So it's not just, oh, you Christians, you keep pulling out the faith card. Faith that's based on evidence. Now, I'm going to say one more thing here, Oliver. Faith is observable. And you can look at the lives of people who have come to know Jesus by faith, and you can quantitatively, you can see the evidence of changed lives. I got saved 29 years ago. I'm not even close to the same person I was then. 
My life, my mission in life has changed completely. And Oliver, that's why Christianity is true. You know, if somebody is an Islam, it doesn't, uh, a Muslim, it doesn't matter how devout they are. What is the fruit of their religion? The fruit is all bad. The subjugation of women, the dehumanization of women, devout Muslims, sincere to the core, will get in airplanes and fly them into buildings where thousands of people will be killed. The fruit of Islam is Coptic Christians on the seashore having their heads cut off for the world to see. Jesus said, the fruit of Christianity is love. I I realize, Oliver, that we Christians don't do a really great job of representing Christ properly. But don't blame that on Jesus. So that's why Christianity is true over the others. Only Christianity is based on the fact of a dead man who was risen from the dead and who is alive to this very day. Good question. Thanks very much. Here is a question from Rachel. Pastor Ron, what would you say to someone like me who is same-sex attracted but wants to obey God? Rachel, God bless you. I I understand, I think, more than uh, most. Uh, Again, as a pastor, I've dealt with a whole bunch of people uh, in your situation. Uh, And uh, let me just ask God to bless you just to bless you. But here's what I would say. No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man or woman. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under the temptation. In other words, so that you can say no to the temptation. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Rachel, memorize it. And God will give you the strength to resist. Now, same-sex attraction is not sin. Giving in to that attraction or giving in to that temptation is. So here's what I would say to you. Every time you say no to you so that you can say yes to God, imagine the smile on his face. Imagine how proud he is of you. Now, that may seem unfair. Well, I don't get to enjoy this part of my life. Well, what about, what, what about uh, sex or what about falling in love with somebody? Well, Jesus says, you fall in love with me. And I'll give you a life that's rich and full beyond anything you ever could imagine. There might be things you have to give up, and certainly acting out on the same-sex attraction is one of those things. But honestly, Rachel, isn't that exactly what God says to everybody who isn't married? To everyone who's not married, he says, be pure. No sex for you. And whether you're heterosexual or homosexual, you're still tempted by the the, the physical attraction to people that you shouldn't be physically attracted to. We live in a cursed world. And same-sex attraction is real. And as the world that we live in is blessing the idea, more and more people are being tempted by it. But we have to make a decision to choose heaven or hell. But see, the key is you said you want to obey God, and he's given you the power to do that. Think about this, Rachel. 
When you say no to your flesh, no to temptation, and the really, really hard things, doesn't it make sense that God is more pleased than if you just said no to something that really didn't matter to you? For instance, personally, I don't drink. I've never had a drink of alcohol. And remember, I, I was almost 40 when I got saved. Um, in high school, I took one drink and spit it out. It was so foul in my mouth. So so when I'm, I've been tempted to drink, not because I wanted to, but, but people would try to tempt me to drink, especially in the business world, uh, it, it never occurred to me to maybe give in, not even for a second. Now, God's pleased that I didn't give in, but he also knows that's no big deal to me. I know how awful it tasted, so I'm just not really into it. But if it was something else, Rachel, that I really wanted to do, something that really mattered to me, and I say no to that so that I can honor God, well, let's just say he's even more pleased because we gave up the hard thing for him. So, Rachel, you will never be disappointed that you obeyed God. Let me also add that you will always be disappointed every time when you give in to the temptation. Every time. So we'll be praying for you, Rachel. Hang in there. God bless you. Uh, Before going on to the next question, let me just say to the audience here, I think a question like Rachel's sort of gives us an indication of what life is like for somebody who's same-sex attracted. Imagine what it would be like for you if somebody told you to follow God, you have to give up the person you love. That you're always going to be alone, that you never have anybody to hold you, never have anybody to be intimate with. Most of us would think, well, God, that's not fair. And I know that because I hear that a lot from people. Well, every time somebody is in this tension that Rachel's asking about, we're telling them that they've got to give up the hope of love that most of us have known we needed from the very beginning. As we grew up, we wanted to be loved. And what we can learn is that Jesus' love is enough. My grace is sufficient for you, he told Paul in a different context, in the context of pain and suffering. How much more wants this kind of emotional pain? Again, Rachel, same-sex attraction is not a sin. Giving into it is. And don't let anybody tell you any different. Hope that helps. We have three minutes left in the first half of our program. Phones have been quiet. We'd love your participation in the second half. Here's a question from Matthew. He says, why does the Protestant Bible leave out the apocryphal books? Uh, Because they don't belong. Uh, The Catholic books have them in. No Old Testament manuscript ever has included them as a part of the inspired scripture. Uh, They simply don't belong there. Now, they're not bad books. They, They have historical value. And they fill in some some story gaps. The, the, the difference, Matthew, is that they're not written by God. They're not written by God. There are some errors in them. There are inconsistencies, things that contradict other parts of what we know to be the inspired Bible. 
So don't look at it like the Protestant Bible leaves them out. It's the Catholic Bible adds them in. And they simply don't meet the test for canonicity. So we've got all the Bible we need. We've got all of the books that we need. Again, the apocryphal books have have, uh, areas of interest. And uh, they fill in some historical blanks. But they're simply not written by God. And if we understand that, then we don't worry about that. It's not like um, Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 thesis on the door of the church in Wittenberg, it's not like he said, okay, and, and, and one of the other things is we've got to take out those books. They just didn't belong in the Bible. They're not inspired by God. And that means they're not dependable. So, Matthew, I hope that answers your question. How am I doing on time? Just over a minute. Okay, just over a minute. Let me see if I have a really quick question. Uh, here's a quick question. Ian says, can you explain how angels work today? No, I can't, Ian. Uh, actually, I will on the other side of the break. That'll take more than a minute. Um, tomorrow night here at Calvary Chapel, I'm going to be teaching Genesis chapter 20. A really, really practically important chapter for New Testament Christians. So that will be tomorrow night. Uh, I'm teaching Ephesians. I uh, best study ever last Friday night. Not that I did it good. Just Ephesians two eight through ten, and another really good one with the next three verses this Friday night. Hey, we've got thirty minutes left in the program. Three four zero ninety five eighty five or toll free eight seven seven. 630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the Word to Stand On for Life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program. Hey, the phones have been quiet. They ended up that way last week, and we're starting off this week that way. If there's anything I can help with, please call. Let's go to a question at Carlson, and he says, I think it unfair to send missionaries to places where people are so entrenched in their religion because it upsets their entire culture. What are your thoughts? Carl, I you couldn't be more wrong. You see, we send missionaries because they need to be upset because they're so entrenched in their religion. You know, you're never doing anything wrong when you're telling people the truth. But to let people be lost in their religious traditions because you're afraid it might upset the culture of, of, of the, the, the country? Jesus doesn't want anybody to go to hell. And that's why missionaries have been sent. Think about Dr. Livingston, David Livingston. When he died, his heart was cut out so it could be buried in Africa. You can take my body back. 
but my heart belongs to Africa, he said. Think about William Carey. I mean, there's so many others. Brother Andrew. Just think about the people that, that opened the eyes of so many in foreign countries. And now the people that got saved as a result are going to be in heaven for eternity instead of hell. So, Carl, you have a very secular way of thinking. You know, the fact that somebody was raised in the, in the, in the Islamic religion, religion um, doesn't mean that they're going to get past. When Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So we've really, Carl, we've really got to understand the value, the importance, in fact, the urgency of sending missionaries everywhere. Right now, we need missionaries in the United States of America. We need them in Texas. Because people are lost. And they're getting more and more lost in these last days. So Jesus said he was an offense. The cross is an offense. And we don't need to apologize for what the Bible tells us to do, Carl. We just need to do it. Because if we don't, we're going to end up apologizing to Jesus and it's not going to be enough when we get to heaven. Sometimes entire cultures need to be thrown into upset so that people can get saved. Okay, here's the question from Ian. He said, can you explain how angels work today? Um, Ian, nobody really knows for sure. We know they're ministering servants sent to, to, to serve those who are going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's you and me. Uh, we know their eyes are focused on the throne of God, waiting for instructions. Every time an angel is sent into the mission, his mission field, um, it's because Jesus looked and said, go, go. We know that they protect. We know that sometimes perhaps we've entertained angels and, and not known it when we encountered a stranger who needed a chance to be loved. So, we really don't have details. There are entire books that pastors have written on angels. And I, I'll never understand for the life of me where, where they get their information. Most of it is just sort of speculation. But angels work. Now, Ian, let me explain. I've had angels that I know for sure who saved us from things at least on three separate occasions where there's no other explanation other than angelic intervention. One time Paul and I were, she was driving me up to Bible college and, and we got in this terrible snowstorm, first hail, then snow. And we're going straight up a mountain and um, our, our, the truck that she was, I, I was driving at the time, the, the truck started spinning out of control going toward the edge. Now, when it turned around and me being on the driver's side, I could look right down the cliff and it was straight down. I don't know, 2,000 feet. Straight down. There's no way to stop it. We were already one wheel ready to go off. And out of nowhere, our truck stopped and very slowly started turning in the opposite direction with no impetus. Just very slowly started turning in the opposite direction. We found ourselves in the going down the mountain lane, exactly in the lane to go down, and uh, there's no other explanation. Jesus sent angels to save us that day. There's another time when 
um, Paula before, just before I got saved, and she was running out of hope, just despairing. Uh, her life was so miserable, and I was the cause of that mis- m- misery. And uh, Paula, on two two separate occasions, she had this smell that was so profound, so heavenly, that she did everything she could to go try to find it. Now, when I got saved, I knew that that was angels bringing the, the, the fragrance of life, the aroma of life. It was just their way of saying, we're, we're here, God has sent us, and it's going to be okay. And I got saved very shortly after that. Another time, Ian, uh, we had a, a trip into Scotland uh, and London. We, we took people from the church. Um, and, and what we did, we just hit the streets and evangelized for 11 days. And uh, when we were first there, one of our ladies, Julie, um, she was getting ready to step off the um, curb. And because the traffic is coming the other direction, she looked the wrong way and she stepped off. And I was standing three feet from her. And I saw that she was going to get hit. There was a huge bus. And the streets are very, very narrow. And she stepped right in the path of that bus. And, and, and I just screamed. I knew she was dead. And... She was standing on the curb by herself, and we knew we'd been rescued. So angels work. They're, they're, they serve God, and they work when he tells them to do. So it's a God watching out. The angels don't deserve the praise or the worship, but Ian, that's how they work. Here is a question. Oh, phone call. Scott from Shirts on Line 1. Scott, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. It's good to hear your uh, voice live. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. Uh, was that an old recording yesterday? Because your voice sounded different for some reason. Well, it, it, it was yesterday. older. I was I was probably younger and had more energy, Scott. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> I got a question for you today, brother. Um, I've, we've, we're continuing to do our Bible studies on Zoom. It's kind of awkward, but uh, anyway, mm-hmm. I had a question from uh, one of the students, and um, I told him that I wasn't going to guess at it. I was going to look into it, and I, uh, I I just wanted to run it by you, too, on explanation. And it's in Exodus chapter 20, verse 6. And the question was, is why do they only mention thousands and not billions or multitudes? When I looked it up in the, the Bible dictionary, um, it was saying that it was a reference to, um, I guess, like um, families or tribes. Um, so that would be multiple multitudes. Um, they give reference, I think it was in um, Micah and Numbers. They had different verses. But I just wanted your take on that. Um, can can, I, I can you give me the verse? The thing or, verse 6. Yeah, it's chapter, chapter, uh, Exodus chapter 20, um, verse 6. And it says, but showing, well, I've got the New King James Version. But showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And the question is, why was it only thousands? And I, I believe I got the answer, but I, I just wanted your input on that and, and any extra you can give me. God bless okay. you, brother. Have a Thank you, awesome Scott. Day. Let me thank you. Appreciate it. I'll dig it out and tell you what it says. Now, this is the one that I was referring to earlier um, when uh, about the, the generational curses. Um, I got to find... Chapter 6, 
I'm visually impaired. Be gracious with me for a moment. Where are we here? Chapter 20. Here it is. Let, let's, let's go back to verse 5, Scott. Um, obviously, this Ten Commandments, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And here's the good news, but showing love to a thousand generations. I want you to note the contrast in verse 5 of those who love me and keep my commands. And this is very, very Jewish uh, in style, Scott. Um, This is a contrast. Um, 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 The sins of the fathers will be passed to third and fourth generations, but showing love to a thousand generations. And when it says a thousand generations, it isn't literal. It's just the idea is, you know, God's wrath rests on people who sin. But um, for those who love him, he'll show that love to a thousand generations. And it's like you and I saying, you know, I, I love you so much. I love you like a million times over. That's, that's what he's saying. Uh, any of us who have been affected by our parents' sin, uh, all we have to do to reverse the curse of the way we're raised, turn to Jesus. Isaiah 43 says, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. And then these wonderful promises that await us for a thousand generations. So when it says a thousand generations, that's just a way of saying a lot of generations. And the intentional purpose there is to show the contrast between the wrath of God to the third and fourth generation, but showing love. Now, remember in the, the, the wrath of God for the third and fourth generation are those who hate me, but to a thousand generations of those who love me. So obviously what he's doing there is saying that um, all you got to do is love God and we don't need to worry about those things. And his love is ours forever and ever and ever. So that's all he's doing. It's sort of... Um, spiritual hyperbole, but it, but it's hyperbole in the best way. That's a good question, Scott. Thank you very, very much. hope that answers the question for you. We've got Jeff on line two from San Antonio. Jeff, thanks for calling. You're on the air. My favorite pastor, Ron. How you doing, brother? <laughs> pastor? I'm doing well. Thank you. So Mama Paula smelled like angels? couple times no she sm- no she smelled angels she, she always smells smelled like an angel she smells like an angel and she said once that you smell like what baby powder and old spice or something like that, <laughs> that was- i always smell <laughs> like that jeff every day <laughs> you know i forgot the last i forgot on sam's birthday to mention that he's exactly two months older than me so so i will always be you know <laughs> honoring him as my Great elder at fifty-nine. <laughs> you, you'll never catch up to him, huh, Jeff? No, never ever. October twenty-six. My daughter's August twenty-six. Just a detail. Well, for for those who don't know, Sam is our producer on the program, and and he and Jeff have met and hung out several times. So, what's up, Jeff? Well, so uh, you know, I I started uh, reading about Willow Creek finally placing a new pastor and i just got really sad about bill hybels again and uh 
uh, you know, he had, I just, I thought that he had authored some really uh, excellent books and I had participated in their, their leadership conferences for several years. Yeah. And it was just a grave disappointment. And then this uh, Liberty University, I don't know if you've commented yet on on Jerry Falwell Jr., but, I, I, you know, the, 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 the accusations against him have been going on for a long time. And I just wonder, you know, what does a board of a Christian college, you know, uh, do to put someone like that who says he has no bent for 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 a pastoral life but he you know probably had an MBA or 95% of what he does is, is is requires an MBA like many pastors of mega churches now you know they're they're all they all have MBAs instead of you know <laughs> MDivs and and it it's just one of those things too when you hear uh, left radio talk about it. It's just like, hey, Christians, look what your people are doing, and these are people in really prestigious positions. And how do you reconcile that? You know, yeah. um, just really disappointing. And I'll, I'll take your I'll take your comments off here. And just one other thing, I wanted to ask you. I don't know if you've ever talked about um, uh, the word to stand on for life theme song. Uh, I, I really like to hear some background <laughs> on that. Okay. And I'll let you go, Pastor. Me, Love you. Thank you, Jeff. God bless. Uh, let me do that first because it's easy. A friend of mine uh, at Fort Bragg, California, um, pastor of Calvary Chapel there, Kevin Green, uh, wrote the song for me. He's a, 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 a truly gifted musician. Um, you can put him, go on YouTube and Jeff uh, or Kevin Green, um, just Google him. Now, there's lots of Kevin Greens, but Pastor Kevin Green. And um, um, you'll be so blessed. I mean, some of the stuff he's written is just magnificent. He just happens to be a good friend of mine. I knew I could kind of touch him up. I, I called him and said, Jeff, our, our theme song for our radio program is getting really old. And I, I heard it one day, and it just sounded old. And I thought, we got to do something new. And he wrote that for me in about an hour. And um, um, I, he, the first version of it was a little bit downbeat. I said, no, t- turn up the tempo a little bit. So that was my only input to the whole thing. And he wrote it, uh, produced it, sung it, and we've been using it now for a whole bunch of years. Um, but Kevin's a great guy, and if you want to really be blessed, if you're into music, you want to really be blessed, you can, you can uh, YouTube him and see, uh, listen to a lot of the music that he's written. He is unbelievable. Good guy, loves Jesus with all of his heart. Let me talk about the other. And yes, Jeff, I, I, a week before last, I had, uh, I think, two questions about what was going on in the news with Jerry Falwell Jr. I did not know, by the way, that uh, uh, Willow Creek named a new pastor yet, or at least a permanent one. So I'd be interested in knowing who that was. I'm, I'm sure I can find it by going to their website. But one of the things that we have to do as Christians, we don't need to apologize for these things. Uh, Of course, our sin is going to be pointed out by those who hate God. We're going to be called hypocrites, all those things. I get that. That is by divine design. God said our sin will be shouted from the rooftops. Uh, He told the, the tribes in Israel, be sure that your sin will find you out. And when we sin so publicly, when we refuse repentance, uh, then we're putting ourselves in the position where we're going to be in great shame and dishonor to the Lord. 
And it is a good thing when those sins are pointed out and when men like that have to step down. I cannot tell you how many people's faith has been crushed by Bill Hybel's fall. Evidently, for years and years and years, people around him were overlooking his sin. It was whispered about, but but they were just overlooking it. The guy gets so powerful, uh, a church outwardly seems so successful. But God's not going to let that keep going, and eventually he comes crashing down. And um, the leadership conferences he did, even the model of church, Willow Creek has ruined a whole bunch of of, of churches in this country uh, who followed their model because they're not a, a Bible-teaching model. It's sort of a seeker-sensitive model. We don't want to offend anybody. And, uh, um, you know, when your gospel is veiled, when your messages appeal to the flesh, then never be surprised. Never be surprised when you find out that they were operating in the flesh behind the scenes. And the truth of the matter is, Jeff, it doesn't matter whether it's Bill Hybels or uh, this modest, inconsequential pastor in San Antonio, Texas. In our flesh, we're going to sin and we're going to embarrass God and we're going to fall. So walking in the Spirit is really, really important. Now with Jerry Falwell Jr., it's a little different because he never pretended that he had a pastoral calling. His father did, uh, at least believed he did. His father messed up as well. But um, Jerry Falwell Jr., you know, lots of college presidents are, are, are not even believers, let alone Bible-believing believers. Um, and, um, you know, he was evidently pretty good at what he did. And uh, the, the school was very successful. So there was reason to look behind the scenes. Now, the fact that Liberty is a dedicated Christian university raises the stakes and Jerry Falwell Jr. has been in trouble two or three times over the years and he survived them all. This time it was so bad and the details so salacious that he couldn't survive. And um, don't feel too bad for him. He got a $10 million buyout from the university. Um, the, the university was functioning as a business inherited from or passed from father to son. And um, uh, he had a golden parachute, and he uh, he's walking away with $10 million. So uh, from a worldly perspective, he's not in bad shape. From a spiritual perspective, it's awful. And the shame is that the faculty, the staff, and the board of directors, who are all professing believers at Liberty University, didn't do something a long time before that. Um, I also, uh, Sam is telling me I got to David Dummett, uh, is a megachurch pastor from Michigan. He will be the new senior pastor of Willow Creek Community Church. So uh, that's the answer to that. Uh, one, one final thing about um, Christians who who uh, fall, and, and I'm not doubting Jerry Falwell Jr.'s salvation at all by saying this, but the more you get away with things, the harder the discipline of God is going to be. When famous people fall, uh, other people stumble. Uh, a man that I called a friend at one time, um, a pastor of the biggest Calvary Chapel in this country, um, still the most gifted communicator I've ever heard speak, 
And he fell into horrible sin and brought shame to a lot of us. And um, the, the church there, this was, I don't know, five years ago. Um, the church where, where he was is still recovering from it. So we've really got to be careful. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And Jeff, I don't care whether it's my friend or Jerry Falwell Jr. or Bill Hybels, if you walk in the flesh, then you're going to fall and the crash is going to be a loud one. Thank you, Jeff. Good hearing from you. I think i got time for one more good question. Hector says, Pastor Ron, why did Paul tell Timothy to get circumcised when he was otherwise anti-legalism. Hector, he really was anti-legalism, uh, and he, he opposed Peter to the face, James, and all of the others. Um, you're putting a yoke on them that you yourselves couldn't stand under. But with Timothy, it was different. Now, remember, Timothy was Paul's protege, his son in the faith. Timothy was also half-Jewish. And just like if somebody's, our kids are half black, half white, the world sees them as black. Well, in the world that Paul traveled in, Timothy would have been seen as a Jew. And the fact that he wasn't circumcised would have prevented him from any opportunity to minister. So Paul wasn't saying to Timothy, get circumcised so that you can be saved. What he was saying is, Timothy, get circumcised so that your ministry won't be limited. That, 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 Potential audience will grow. Paul's method was always go to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles when the Jews rejected him. Well, Timothy, if you're going to go to Jews, then you need to be circumcised. And as important as that is... Now, Titus, he didn't compel. Titus was a Gentile. Titus, he didn't compel to be circumcised. But here's what he was saying. He was saying, Timothy, I want to make your audience as big as it possibly can be. I want you to appeal to the largest number of people and you're going to completely eliminate the ability to minister in Jewish communities if in fact you're not circumcised. So that's what Timothy did. And there was no argument. Um, Timothy didn't complain that Paul was a legalist. Uh, He just understood that this is what was going to be. I think I got time to to say this, Hector. Um, Years ago, I had a friend who was this old hippie surfer dude. And he was a Calvary Chapel pastor and uh, he, you know, he says, well, i got to be true to me. This is who I am. And he'd actually go to church wearing a Hawaiian shirt and shorts and bare feet and, and uh, you know, talking dude. I mean, an older guy, too, uh, using surfer-type language. And uh, his church just exploded right at the beginning. But then slowly, after about the first year, it started diminishing in impact because he refused to change. At some point, we've all got to grow up. We've got to see what God's vision for our ministry is rather than holding on to the vision of ministry that we think is appropriate. Thank you, Hector. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for the calls today. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. 
The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.